broke all the rules. First, he travels through Samaria, a despised land of people called half-breed dogs, the race of those who intermarried with the invading Assyrians centuries earlier. People who were considered unclean and worshippers of false gods. Jesus then speaks to a Samaritan woman, something that would have never been done. Men simply did not speak to women in public. Men had their place in public life, and women had theirs. Silent. But Jesus broke all the rules. This was especially true in that Jesus spoke with a woman known for an immoral lifestyle. She was the shame of her town, and yet Jesus, the one who was known as a prophet and son of God, spends time with her. Then he shares her cup. This would have made him unclean in Jewish tradition. Sharing the cup of a Samaritan? A woman? A disgrace? A sinner? Jesus broke all of the social and religious rules to show the love of God to this one woman who needed a touch of grace in her life. What Jesus called living water. Not the stagnant, polluted water of her broken upbringing or her broken cultural injustices or her broken religious system, but the living water of God's freely given grace. A grace so satisfying that she will never thirst again. The woman at the well was a Samaritan and they've always had it tough. 700 years before Jesus Christ came, there was an invasion. The Assyrian Empire invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, dispersing 10 of the tribes. And it was said that the Assyrians intermarried with the remaining Jewish people and created the Samaritan race. And that Samaritan race were considered half-breeds, intermarried with the infidels from the north. So they were despised by the Jews, utterly despised, disrespected, maligned, abused, victims of hatred, and violence. And that's true even to this very day. There are 700 Samaritans that remain on earth today, and they are living in between the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. In fact, I want to introduce you to one of them, Joseph Cohen. In the not-too-distant past, on the 8th of November during the Second Intifada, Joseph was driving home from the Palestinian town of Nablus. When he was almost home, he says, he came across two Palestinian boys who were armed, and they shot me in the car. Blood ran from me like water. As a result, he lost control of the car and was headed towards an Israeli roadblock. They shouted, stop, but I could not stop the car. They shot me as well. There are probably few people in the world who have been shot by both Palestinians and Israelis, but as Mr. Cohen says, this is the short story of the Samaritan people, a people who have always been caught in the middle. For 2,700 years, the Samaritan people have been caught between powerhouses around them. They've been caught between cultures, and, and they've really kept their own culture as a distinct culture, as a distinct race. The story of Jesus and his interaction with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 is also a short story of the Samaritan people. How she perceived himself, herself is very important, but how he perceived her is more important. 
And essentially what we see out of John chapter four, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman is that God loves everyone everywhere. This truth just pours off the page of John chapter four. And as a result, it's, it's impossible to overstate the importance of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman, which is why we're highlighting it uh, during this series called The Life. We're highlighting 12 aspects of Jesus' life, and this has to be one of the 12 because it's so important and it is so powerful in expressing the heart of God for all people. Now, in order to really understand John chapter four, we also have to understand John chapter three. John three and four are meant to be compared side by side. I wanna show you images of what Nicodemus might've looked like in John chapter three and what the Samaritan might've looked like in John chapter four. In John chapter three, we see Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Jew. He's also a religious leader. The woman at the well is a Samaritan. Nicodemus is a man, Samaritan is a woman. Nicodemus is a man of repute, a man of reputation. In fact, he is even named in John 3, Nicodemus. There is no name given to the woman at the well. Nicodemus is a righteous man. As a religious leader, as a Pharisee, he gave his life to obeying God's law. The woman at the well, as we'll see here in a minute, was referred to as a sinner. Nicodemus was honored, the woman was an outcast. He was educated, she was uneducated. He was from Jerusalem, the holy city of God, the capital of Israel. She was from Mount Gerasim, considered to be a second-rate religious site. Nicodemus was a legalist. The woman at the well was a mystic. These two people, John 3, Nicodemus, John 4, woman at the well, these two are side-by-side side for a very particular purpose. There could not be two more different people in all the earth. And yet we see Jesus treats them both the same. He treats them both the same. Now, Nicodemus was a legalist, a legalist. And the Samaritan woman was a mystic. I'm going to define those terms here in a minute. But as I do, I would love it if you would pull out your phone. We're going to take a little poll. We're going to take a poll on the Rancho app. Most of you have the Rancho app. If you don't, you can search Rancho Temecula. On the homepage of our Rancho app, there's a, a poll at the very bottom. Just hit take our poll, and you can really ask yourself, are you leaning more towards legalistic or mystic? What is a legalist? By the way, legalists are winning here at Rancho Community Church. I was the first one to vote, and I said I have a tendency towards legalism. Legalism is defined this way, that God will bless and give eternal life if we are devoted to obeying his commands. This is legalism. I was raised with mentors and teachers that taught me the value of God's word, to love God's word, to study God's word, to teach God's word, to obey God's word. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but I took that as a source of pride. And I took that as sort of a, a ladder to earn God's acceptance, to earn answered prayers, and even to give me the assurance that I had eternal life. I knew God's word, obeyed God's word, at least that I, that's what I was telling people. That's a legalist. Now, Jesus comes alongside the legalist Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and says, your legalism, your constant obsession with obeying God's word is getting you nowhere. In fact, it's not even in the kingdom of heaven. He gave his entire life to obey God's word, and Jesus says, you're not in the kingdom of heaven. He says this in John 3, 5. Jesus answered Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. He tells Nicodemus, you are born of flesh. In other words, you are trying in your own might to earn God's approval by obeying the law. That's not in the kingdom of heaven. You must be reborn. He says, be born again of water and the spirit. And we'll talk about what that means here in a minute. Jesus says to the legalist, of whom I was one, your passion 
to obey God's word in order to earn God's acceptance or to earn approval from others is dead. You need to be reborn to water and spirit. Then in John chapter four, he talks to the mystic, the woman at the well. Mysticism believes this, that God will bless and give eternal life if we are devoted to a spiritual, emotional connection with him. Uh, People who lean towards mysticism want to feel God's presence. They want to have an experience with God emotionally. And, uh, and that is mysticism. That was the woman at the well. They believed that God mystically interacted with them through Mount Gerasim. That was their holy site. They believed that Mount Gerasim existed before the creation of the world. And on the screen, you can see these are the remaining Samaritans who take an annual pilgrimage to Mount Gerasim, and they have a whole worship service up there. It's really quite beautiful, although a little misguided because they have not yet as a people embraced the living water of Jesus Christ. Um, But they're up there uh, embracing this mountain, this mystical experience with God. They believe that God blesses his people through the mountain. They believe that God made Adam from the mountain. They believe the Savior will come through that mountain and that God will bring life to the world through that mountain. As Jesus told the legalist, his legalism was dead. Jesus tells the mystic in John 4 that her mysticism is dead. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who is it that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says what you're doing in your mysticism, what you're doing in your life is you're pulling water from that that is dead. You're pulling from a dead cistern. Jesus says, as he told Nicodemus, he tells the Samaritan woman, I'm here to give you new water. I'm here to give you living water. So the invitation of the Samaritan woman was the same as the invitation of the Jewish Pharisee, to accept the life-giving, living water that Jesus offers. So on the poll, on the Rancho app, you can just, you know, let me know, um, were you a legalist? Do you tend towards, if I obey, if I do the right things, if I'm morally pure, then I will earn God's favor, maybe earn answered prayers, earn eternal life? Is that your bent? Or are you bent more towards a mystical, emotional experience with God? You want to feel God's presence and feel a unity with him. Are you mystic or are you um, a legalist? All of us have a bent one way or the other. Uh, Legalism is winning by about uh, two uh, two to one ratio. So maybe this will tip it one way or the other. But both the legalist and the mystic have some things in common. Both the legalistic and the mystic never believe they're good enough. The legalist never believes they're obedient enough. They always have to do more. The mystic never really quite has enough of that emotional connection with God to feel totally satisfied. Both are driven by guilt and threats. You need to do more. Both are never confident in their standing with God. They're confident maybe if they have a season of obedience. They're confident if they have a mystical, emotional experience with God. But then when those fade, there's a, there's a lack of confidence in our walk with God. There's internal shame. At the height of my legalism as a, as a young man and early in ministry, I knew that I was not really obeying God. I was in ways that people could see, but I wasn't in ways people couldn't see. So there's internal shame and there's external judgment. Because we are impressing people with our lives on the outside, we then believe we can judge other people who are not as impressive as us. Both the legalist and the mystic have the same problem. That's why Jesus offered living water both to the legalist Nicodemus and to the mystic woman at the well. So what is this living water? What is this living water that's offered both to the legalist and to the mystic? Well, the living water is the love and grace of God unconditionally poured out on us. 
Living water quenches the thirst for love. We all have a thirst for love. We all want to be loved. We all want to be accepted. And we spend our lives trying to earn love and earn acceptance. It begins in our families. A lot of times our families love conditionally. You know, you'll be approved and accepted and treated well if you're good. If you're not good, then there's harshness and yelling and accusations and things like that. So oftentimes we're raised in families that do not have this living water of unconditional love. We go to churches and it's always the same thing. You're not good enough, do better. And then if you're doing better, God is gonna approve of you. It's all the same thing. It's conditional love everywhere. The living water of heaven is unconditional love poured out. And that living water quenches the thirst for love. It quenches the thirst for acceptance. It quenches the thirst for assurance that God cares, that God forgives, and that God gives eternal life as a free gift of grace. That's living water. Jesus defines living water in his interaction with a Samaritan woman. He says, living water is a free gift of God, John 4.10. It's a free gift. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. Now, this Samaritan woman was working and working and working. Not only was she working physically, uh, drawing the water, putting it in jars and carrying it on her back. Women had it rough in ancient times and still in tribal situations today. Women have it tough. They did a lot of hard physical work. But that was just a symbol of the spiritual labor that she was in. She thought she was rejected by God, wrong race, wrong gender, wrong behavior, right? Jesus says, stop the labor. Stop trying to prove anything to God or to others. Stop trying to earn his love. Just rest from your work and accept the living water of God's grace. Living water is a free gift. Living water satisfies always. Jesus says, you will never thirst again. You receive the love of God, the grace of God, you'll never thirst again. You'll never have that sort of, that, that hole and that longing that you are not loved. That will be filled with the love of God. Living water becomes a spring. This is a very cool metaphor in John 4, 14. Jesus says to this woman, if you receive the living water from heaven, you will become a spring of living water for others. And that was borne out later when she goes and shares to the whole village uh, the love that Christ gave her. Living water is also the source of eternal life. It wells up to eternal life. Now, when we think of eternal life in Western Christianity, we think, oh, good, I get to live forever. Well, that's, that's fine and wonderful and true. But biblically, living uh, our eternal life is something far more rich and deep. It is the whole world truly living. It's an eternal life, not just in terms of time going forward, but it's an eternally deep life. And that deep life is a life where everybody recognizes how unconditionally loved they are by God and senses that love and lives in that love, not just with God, but with one another. That's eternal life, and that's what Jesus Christ offers. Now, I don't want to brag and don't be a hater, but I just got back from Maui. 25th wedding anniversary for Scott and Jenny Treadway. Yay, us. Woo. We did it. In our tradition service, they're like, that ain't no big deal. We passed that up a long time ago. But uh, 25 years, kind of a big deal for us. And we debated, do we take our kids to Hawaii or not? And we decided, yeah, hey, um, you know, we're using airline miles. And so because they're cheap, we'll, we'll bring them along. They're here. So anyway, uh, we all went as a family and uh, we went to all the stops. You know, my wife and I went there on our honeymoon 25 years ago. So we're going back to Maui. And one of the stops is a waterfall off of Highway 360 called Wailua Falls. It is an 80 foot tall waterfall. It's beautiful, not too far off the road. And uh, this is, um, this is uh, from my, my sweet little iPhone and uh, 80 feet tall. And then you dive into the pool and we all dove into the pool. Uh, this is three of my kids, but we all got in there and just had a great time. It was raining out there and nobody was courageous like we were to make that hike. 
uh, over the rocks to, the, uh, to the, that, that water. So we had the place to ourselves. It was really cool. You get in there, so refreshing, and it's very cool to be right underneath that waterfall, 80 feet of water, just fresh, beautiful water pouring over your head, just enjoying it, right? Enjoying it. That's, that's the living water of heaven. It doesn't come from us. We don't have to earn God's love. We don't have to earn God's acceptance. We just receive it. He just loves to pour out love and acceptance to us. And so true and eternal life is a living spring that freely comes from God, not a dead pool that we have to work and draw from. So many people trying to earn love from God by their obedience. So many people trying to earn love from God through experiences of worship or feeling, you know, God's love in their heart or whatever it is. We're trying to attain something on our own. Jesus offers to Nicodemus and the woman at the well, rest, be at peace. Know that God loves you. Unconditionally pours out forgiveness, grace, and love on your life. Jesus essentially says to the woman, you know what? Your whole life is working to draw from this dead cistern, right? Receive living water. Stop working for the approval of God. Stop working for the approval of others. Just know how loved you are. Enjoy that love that comes from God. So the question today for you is is a tough one. It might seem easy at first, but I want us to really think through this question. Would you describe your life as a dead pool of striving for approval or living water enjoying God's unconditional love? If you've been in church, you know that this is the right answer, right? We're supposed to just rest in God's unconditional love. But truly, what is your experience? Where do you live in your heart? Do you truly know that God loves you no matter what you have done, no matter what you will do? God loves you just as you are, not what religious people tell you you should be. He loves you right here, right now, just as you are. Do you really know that? Is that the foundation of your life? I am unconditionally loved by God. Or do you think, you know what? I'll be loved by God if I'm more religious, if I go to church more, if I'm more obedient, if I stop doing the same wrong things I do all the time. If, 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 then God will love me. That's the dead cistern you're laboring to pull from. Jesus says, stop. Just know how loved you are right here, right now, as you are. That's living water. And if we really understand the living water of God's unconditional love, then we will not be so excited about earning approval from others. We will be so confident in God's love that we won't have to try to earn approval from others. The real slavery of life is when we don't think we're loved unconditionally by God. We have to earn our way to his love. Then we have to earn love everywhere. We have to earn love from our family, our marriage, our parents, our kids, our friends. We got to look right, dress right. We got to pretend like our life was all together by what we post on Insta. It's all got to look good so people are going to believe I'm worth something. That's laboring to pull from dead cisterns. Jesus wants us to understand the living water of unconditional love from heaven. That's what living water is. So how does that message get out? How does that message get to the rest of the world? Because this is where real life comes from. Real life only comes from unconditional love. So how does that message get out? Well, we just have to follow the example of Jesus in John chapter four. Here's what John 4, 4 says. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Was he late for an appointment in Galilee and had to take a shortcut? Did he leave his wallet in Samaria and had to go there? No, there was no logistical reason why he had to go through Samaria. The only reason why he had to go through Samaria is because the kingdom of heaven has to get living water to everyone, everywhere. The kingdom of heaven has to get this living water of God's grace and love to everyone, 
everywhere. Jesus had a divine compulsion to get the living water of God's love to Samaria and particularly to this one woman, to this one woman who was an outcast, this one woman who felt she was absolutely second, third, fourth class, rejected by everybody, believed she was even rejected by God. He had to get this message of living water to her, to her. Now I'm gonna show you a couple of maps here so we get a, a context here. Uh, Jesus broke just about every cultural and religious norm to extend grace to this woman. He broke the norms. Here were the norms. I want to show you a map of uh, the area. Galilee is that sea up on the top there. That's where Jesus was raised. His ministry was very popular up there. Every once in a while, he goes down to Jerusalem, down south there, to cause trouble. Every time he went to Jerusalem, he caused trouble because he was out there to break the religious power brokers that kept people enslaved to religion and corruption. So every time he went down to Jerusalem, he made a mess intentionally, right? So he goes down to Jerusalem. When it gets hot and heavy and death threats start to come on Jesus, that's when Jesus says early in his ministry, I got to get out of here until he decided to stay where he knew he'd be crucified for the sins of the world. But during John chapter four, the, the heat in Jerusalem got pretty, pretty heavy and he decided we need to go back to Galilee. We have to go back to Galilee. Let's go back to uh, one slide. There's three roads to Galilee. The red road is the Eastern route. Jews went east. They did not wanna go through Samaria. The blue road is the Samaritan road. Jews did not wanna go through the land of the half-breed dogs who were unclean and cursed. So they took the long route and sometimes treacherous route uh, east. So Jesus and the disciples were in Jerusalem. Here's the map of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, we've got to go to Galilee. And the disciples said, great, let's go out the east gate. Well, Jesus starts walking out the north gate. Disciples, uh, Jesus, you said we're going to Galilee. East road, cross the Jordan, treacherous mountain, cross the Jordan, right? Go home. That's how we do it. We're Jews. We're going east. Jesus says, we're going north. The road through Samaria. This is shocking, culturally shocking. And as we consider our own lives, I think it's healthy for us to ask which gate are we going through? Are we gonna keep walking east? And by the way, all of us, myself included, we wake up and go east. Every single time we wake up and we go east. We go east to the people we're comfortable with, the places that we're comfortable with. We have lunch with the people we're comfortable with. We hang out with the people that are kind of like us, basically the same age, same economy, same racial ethnic background. We love to cluster with sameness. That's going east. But every once in a while, I think we have to go north with Jesus. Jesus goes north. And he spends time with people that are not like him. He spends time in the uncomfortable places. And he gets to know people. He gets to know their stories. He embraces them. He accepts them no matter what. No matter what race, no matter what gender, no matter what background, no matter what economy. He goes north and he goes where the people are. Even people that are uncomfortable. Even people that are not like us. He goes north. Jesus went north to intentionally shatter the barrier of race. To intentionally shatter the barrier of race. We've talked about this, this thought that the, the uh, Samaritans were half-breeds with the Assyrian invaders, right? They weren't pure Jewish blood. They didn't have the right blood as we know it. They didn't have the right DNA. Well, I actually brought the entire human genome code with me. This is 1,000 pages of one font, two-sided, three billion pairs of genetic code in every single human being. It's all right here, 1,000 pages, I think. Let me count. One, two... All right, we'll just trust 1,000 pages. The human genome has been mapped, and so we know a lot about ourselves. 
The person sitting next to you does not have the exact same genetic code as you. There are slight differences. Of 1,000 pages of 3 billion pairs of genetic code, how different is the person sitting next to you? One page. One page. That's the difference genetically to the person sitting next to you. This is everything. Eye color, hair color, height, whatever. Genetic, you know, tendencies. The difference between you and the person sitting next to you, and it wouldn't matter who's sitting next to you. It doesn't matter. Anybody from any country, any continent, anywhere. The difference is one page of a thousand. How much of this one page is dedicated to the genetic differences that we call race? This much. That is the genetic difference in the human characteristics that we call race. How many people have died over wars fought because of race? Tiny little scraps of genetic information, just little pieces, skin color, eye color, just little tiny bits of information in the human DNA. We go to war over this stuff, tiny little things. It's insane. God understands that there really is no difference, statistically no difference, between us and any random person sitting next to you from any country on earth. There's statistically no difference. In fact, Dr. Werner and scientists of the National Institute of Health, they announced that with the human genome now entirely mapped, they have unanimously decided there is no such thing as different races in the human species. Genetically, there is no such thing as race. There is one human race. So all of this conflict over race is nothing but a phantom. It is nothing but a phantom. There's something spiritually broken in us because physically we are statistically exactly the same. There are minor little things that we can see and so we make big differences out of those things. We have been fighting and people have been dying and wars have been fought over something that doesn't even really exist. And you wanna know something as sad? The, the Jews for 2,700 years thought the Samaritans were a different race by blood. Recent geneticists have taken blood samples from modern-day Samaritans and have determined that they are as purely Jewish as Jews. They, in fact, didn't interbreed with the Assyrians. 2,700 years of racism over literally nothing. That's how sad racism is. And all of us are prone to it. Every single one of us are prone to racial biases. Uh, being in, in Maui, you know, you get a chance to see people from all kinds of different countries, right? It's just everybody goes to Maui. And so we saw people from probably every continent. We heard dozens of languages, right? And knowing this message was coming, I always had in the front of my mind, as soon as I see somebody who's different and they might be talking differently, doing something different, what's my initial reaction? And I had to be totally aware of that. What is my initial reaction, that first impression when somebody who's different, doing some different things culturally, speaking a different language, looking a little different, what's my initial just kind of gut response? And it's very interesting to check ourselves in that. And I spent a lot of time working on my own bias and I spent a lot of time intentionally getting to relationships that are diverse. We're part of a denomination that is wonderfully diverse. 
And I make sure to involve myself in as many diverse groups as I can to make as many diverse friends as I can, to get to know as many stories as I can from different parts of the world. Our church is becoming wonderfully more diverse as our town is becoming wonderfully more diverse. As Jesus headed north to break every racial barrier, we've got to head north as well to counter those biases that are in every single one of us. The Samaritan woman said this to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. It's just the rule. You just don't do it. She understood that she was considered second class in race, but she also understood she was second class in her gender. I'm not only a Samaritan, I'm a woman. You can't talk to me, Jesus. You can't share my cup. I mean, that is absolutely unthinkable. Jesus, Jesus would have been considered culturally, societally, religiously unclean. The son of God would have been considered unclean because he talked to this woman and shared a cup with her. Yet he breaks the racial barriers and he breaks the barrier of gender. Jesus intentionally shattered the barrier of gender. Now, during the time of Jesus Christ, women were considered very little more than property. In fact, they were called gentle slaves. That's what women were called during the time of Jesus, gentle slaves. Women could only observe religious ceremonies. They could not participate in religious ceremonies. Women had no rights in public life. They had few rights at home, but those rights were only given to them by their husbands or their father. The father would pass authority over his daughter to her new husband, which he arranged. So a woman would never live outside of the authority of a man, either her father or her husband. Uh, The Mishnah, Jewish literature, taught that a woman was like a gentle slave who could be obtained, keep this, obtained by intercourse, money, or writ. Women could not be counted in the membership of religious congregations. Women were not allowed to receive religious education. Women do not have the right to divorce. Women could not be disciples of rabbis. This was the plight of a woman. This was the place of a woman. And Jesus was a radical. He broke right through that barrier. In fact, in order to talk to the Samaritan woman, he sent his disciples away to go get lunch. Go get me a sandwich. They went to lunch so that he could have this conversation with this woman because they would have freaked out. When they came back from getting him a sandwich, they freaked out. You can't do this, Jesus. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. But Jesus came to break those barriers, shatter those barriers. And I'm so proud of Rancho Community Church. We embrace women to the fullness of their gifts, to the fullness of the congregation. There are no limits to what women can do at Rancho. There's no woman's place at Rancho. Uh, There are no invisible signs that say women are not allowed. This area is for men only. Breaking barriers intentionally. This invitation to follow Jesus north to break the gender barrier is still alive and well today. In fact, I am so excited that we get to live in an era where women's issues are front and center. There's the uh, hashtag MeToo movement, which is giving women a voice to be able to say when they are threatened, when they are abused, when violence is perpetrated against them. There's the hashtag Time's Up uh, movement. That, that it's, it's over, this idea that we can mistreat women and we can harass women and we can uh, you know, grope women or, or we can even uh, abuse women and get away with it. Time's Up. These are very good, very noble movements. And the people who kind of bristle against those typically, and this is I'm just stating reality, this is, I'm not trying to be harsh, but oftentimes it's, it's white males, kind of conservative males who bristle at those 
movements because the thinking, which is understandable to a degree, that if I embrace kind of this women's movement, that means I have to embrace kind of all of liberalism. And I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to be engaged in this whole gender thing. It's, I I would encourage us to, to not think that way. This is an opportunity in the West to close the gap that still exists between the privilege of men and the standing of women. A lot has been done, especially over the last century, that we can be very grateful for, but there's still a gap. There's a gap in terms of the voice of women and and how they are treated. I mean, the reality is that women are mistreated and considered to be sexually objectified from very, very young ages. There is still that gap that still exists. It needs to be closed. Now, now men, we don't have to condescend and say, okay, I will help you women get to where you need to go. No, we just need to get out of their way. Women have everything they need, every skill, ability, talent, every gift from God to close that gap. We just need to get out of the way where we objectify women. And that could be, you know, just letting our minds go or pornography or uh, just insensitive things we say, especially to guys. And I want to caution us. I hear so many guys say such crude things about women to each other. Um, It's just not right. It's not in line with the cause of Christ. Jesus went north and he countered this this mistreatment of of women. And and we've got to get bold, guys, and say, not only am I going to get out of the way so that women can thrive, but whatever I can do to partner alongside of them, whatever I can do to close the pay gap in my company, whatever I can do to, to make sure women have every opportunity in my company, whatever I can do to make sure that there is respect of women in our household, utter respect of our wives, utter respect of our daughters, where we can pour into our daughters a vision of all their lives can become. They, they, they don't have to be considered you know, second. They don't have to be considered just pigeonholed into a specific role. They can become anything they want to become. I'm sorry, I just have my daughter's you know, phases. They can become anything they, they want to become. They don't have to be mistreated in any way. Do not let anybody mistreat you or objectify you. We can partner alongside women to make sure that they have the fullness of life that God has designed for them. That's the road north, and that is the cause of Christ. Third, Jesus not only breaks through the racial barrier, he not only breaks through the gender barrier, he breaks through the barrier of sin. Jesus boldly and intentionally shatters the barrier of sin. This woman at the well was considered to be a town sinner. And and I know that's a weird religious word for those of you who are fairly new. Sin is the weird religious word for messing up, right? We all mess up. Um, All of us do. This, This woman in particular made some life decisions and had some life circumstances against her that caused her to be labeled a sinner. Labeled a sinner. That still happens today. Religious people today still label people sinners. They don't deal with their own sin, that's very minor, but there's the big sins out there that they commit and will label those folks. It still happens today. Jesus broke through, shattered the barrier of sin. He's having this, frankly, awkward conversation with a woman at the well. The woman at the well is very awkward, right? Because Jesus is not supposed to be talking to her. It's breaking all the rules. She's awkward about it. Jesus is kind of steady. And there comes a point where Jesus has to break through in the conversation. So here's what Jesus says. As that prophetic voice of God son of God, he knows a few things. He says this, here's the fact. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Jesus should not have known that. He's passing through, he's meeting her at a well. He knows something that clearly comes from God. So the woman says, you must be a prophet. 
Maybe you're even the savior that we thought was coming. She's, she knows who she's talking to. And she's busted. Could you imagine this woman who's been labeled a sinner by her own religion, by her own hometown, here now is somebody who performs a miracle, tells her something he shouldn't know. He's a prophet, son of God, savior. What must she have been thinking when the son of God's savior reveals to her that he knows her deepest, darkest sin and shame? She's ready for condemnation. I mean, she's ready to get walloped by the wrath of God and no doubt her face just turns white, her eyes this big, what is gonna happen now? Did Jesus condemn her? What's the answer? Did he even tell her, hey, honey, you better get your act together? Nothing. He showed her dignity. He showed her respect and invited her to enjoy the living water of God's grace. Even in the face of knowing her deepest, darkest secrets and shame, all Jesus did was give her grace because grace is what changes us. Grace is what transforms us. Grace is what gives us life, right? When we receive this living water from God, things change. Our life change, we, changes. We well up with love and gratitude and we become the spring of love towards other people. That's really what God is interested in. God's not interested in us towing the line in every moral detail. God wants us to know his love for us and he wants us to love others. That's the command of heaven. And here's another reality. This woman was divorced five times. Now, even by today's standards, that's a, that's a lot. But women couldn't divorce anybody. That means men cast her aside five times. She was not necessarily an immoral person. She was a victim of abuse. She was passed around like a sexual plaything throughout the city. Men cast her aside five times, used her, then cast her aside. So him, her immoral act of living with somebody before marriage, which back then was utterly scandalous, not so much now, but back then was utterly scandalous. That immoral act was likely, and I'm reading between the lines, but I think I'm, I'm on here. That immoral act was her desperately trying to find some sense of love and acceptance from somebody that wasn't tied to these onerous and abusive cultural norms of I'll marry you to have sex with you, then when I'm tired of you, I will cast you aside. That was her life five times. So she's living with somebody. That was her way of saying, forget this whole system. This whole system of religion and cultural norms is just nonsense. I'm gonna find love in some, some way. And she ended up living with this guy and, and I have to assume there was some measure of love between those two that was real unencumbered by the expectations of society and religion around them. She was just done with it. She was just done with it. And she was on her own as a result. John 4 makes it real clear she was at the well by herself. Women never go to the well by themselves for safety reasons and just the camaraderie of, of being together. She was by herself. The whole city rejected her for being immoral. Jesus saw through that and saw her heart her heart that was wounded, her heart that was a victim, and her heart that did make some choices not aligned with God's perfect will, but she, he saw her first and loved her first, prioritized her first, not her moral or immoral behavior. That comes later. 
Jesus broke through the barrier of race, broke through the barrier of gender, broke through the barrier of sin, and finally, and I'll be quick here, Jesus intentionally shattered the barrier of religion. We talk about this a lot here at Rancho, so I'm not gonna belabor the point. Uh, Their religion was sort of this combination of the first five books of the Old Testament and this um, mysticism through this Mount Gerizim. And, and they're just kind of a mess of, of a religion, just kind of a hodgepodge of some, some things piled together. And so there is this war between the Jews and the Samaritans who has the right religion. Uh, our ancestors, she said, worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. There's this debate. What's the right way to worship? What's the right place to worship? Those worship wars still happen today. There's all kinds of fights among religious people. What's the right music in church and the right way to teach God's word in church and blah, 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 blah. That's all I hear. It's the same stuff. The external things are so important to people and Jesus just says, no, this is not important. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you, and that you is not just to the woman, but all of us, will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. This holy mountain, Gerasim, not that big a deal. This holy city, Jerusalem, eh, not that big a deal. It doesn't matter in the kingdom of heaven. Uh Uh-oh, Jesus said it, not me doesn't matter in the kingdom of heaven. The external things don't matter. What does matter? Jesus goes on to say this, John 4, 23, a time is coming and has now come. So we get to enjoy this right now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not about the external, not about religious systems, not about the endless doctrines and rites and rituals and services and moral codes. It's not about all the external True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they're the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. Spirit is different than law. Spirit is different than law. Earlier, John said, Moses brought the law, Jesus brings the spirit, right? The spirit is the work of God. Only God forgives, only God loves. We don't earn our way to him through legalism or mysticism, through experiences or obedience. We can't earn anything from God. The spirit of God just works in our life and pours out love and grace and forgiveness and we just receive it. Truth is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So we follow Jesus Christ. He is the truth. In spirit and truth means we are saved by God alone through Christ alone. That's the living water from heaven that pours on. Free from religion, free from this sense of barrier between us and God, just free to enjoy the life of being loved by God. If you have not yet enjoyed that moment of just being loved unconditionally by God, if you have thought you had to work your way through obedience or experience or whatever religion to earn God's favor, to earn his blessing, to earn answered prayers, to earn eternal life, then you need living water today and you can receive it today. It is first Sunday here at Rancho, which means it's baptism Sunday. We have a baptism pool filled with water. And that water is a symbol of the living water that pours over you, covers you, floods your life with love. You can be baptized today, right after this service. We have towels, we have shirts, we have everything you need. You can go right out to that baptism, right out there, and be baptized today to receive this living water. If you know the living water of God's grace, I want to encourage you in in clothing that you can be a wellspring of living water to others. Spend your life being a wellspring of living water to others. As you've received God's unconditional love, unconditionally love others. Unconditionally love your spouse, your kids. Unconditionally love your parents. Love your neighbor. Love your coworker. And I want to encourage you, head north. Head north. Every day we all wake up and go east. Every once in a while, head north. We've got kids who just came back from uh, Cuba. 
they headed north to a, an uncomfortable place and with people that are totally different, they headed north. We got a group heading to Peru. They're heading north. <laughs> Having people go, go to Mexico, going to Africa. We've got young people being sent all over the world because our church loves to send the next generation to make a difference. We send kids north. We can do the same thing in our lives. As adults, we can live north. Have lunch with people you don't normally have lunch with. Get to know people you don't normally hang out with. Get to know their stories. Share your story. Learn something. Let's really walk together, loving everyone, everywhere. We can be that example. We can follow Christ north, advancing the cause of Christ to everyone we know. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the unconditional love that you pour out to us. This living water through Jesus Christ, spirit and truth, by grace alone through Christ alone. A lot of us try to earn your love by religion, obedience, experiences. God, all of that is futile. It's just drawing stale water from dead cisterns. We need to rest, stop our work, and simply enjoy the privilege of being loved by our Heavenly Father who showed so much love for us that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross to forgive us, to take on the suffering and sin of this world upon himself, to die for it, to pay for it in full, and rising again to give new and eternal life, not just to us personally, but to the whole world that you love so much. God, we receive that living water, and now we want to live as a spring of living water, pouring unconditional love to everybody we know, and walking north walking into places that are uncomfortable, relating with people that we wouldn't normally relate with, being friends with everybody, loving everyone everywhere. God, may that be what our life is lived for, advancing the cause of Christ. In his name we pray and everybody said, amen. amen.